This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI senior writer Al Castle, back once again with my co-host, Brian Solomon. What's up, Brian? Happy to be back with you again, Al, and uh, feeling good. Yeah, a little while since we've had kind of a, a maintenance uh, edition of the, the podcast here. Um, so uh, we got a lot to, to catch up on, um, and uh, we will. Uh, I think the big topic that we're going to be discussing in a bit is the passing of uh, Antonio Inoki. Uh, not an exaggeration to say one of the very, very uh, uh, biggest, most influential figures in uh, wrestling history. Also one that I imagine a lot of uh, American fans, um, certainly in in our age group and younger, maybe not that familiar with, uh, including myself. I had to do some reading up to to really, I mean, it was a name that I was always familiar with, but to really kind of get up to speed on um, or or even start to touch on his contributions. uh, I think you're a little more familiar with him, so we'll talk in uh, a little bit about that. And also a lot of breaking news, certainly with the return of Bray Wyatt to WWE, um, some news in AEW as far as kind of the picture is sort of stabilizing there after some months of uh, turmoil, and uh, we'll cover it all in just a bit. Uh, before that, let me tell you about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling uh, Illustrated. I believe it's available on the newsstands now, and, and it's a biggie. It is a Pro Wrestling Illustrated PWI uh, 500, the 30, I lose track, 32nd uh, yes. edition. Uh, I think uh, the controversy kind of simmered down uh, by now. Um, and, uh, people, they kind of move through the uh, stages of grief, right? So maybe now they're, they're at acceptance, (laughs) the the readers, as far as what the list is. I'm curious. I mean, uh, I think we've talked a little bit about this, but, but, uh, what's been the reaction, uh, you've heard, you know, I thought it was going to be more of kind of a, a a slam dunk people being on board. And we talked a little bit about this with Kevin, uh, but maybe a little more controversy than I anticipated with this one. Well, it's like I always say, you know, with this, the the biggest critiques and things tend to come from people who don't really understand what it's supposed to be. And so it's hard for me to, I mean, I'm not trying to like dismiss people, but it's hard for me to take the criticism seriously when it's just like, well, that's not what this is supposed to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like most of the people who get what it is, enjoy it, I find. Yeah, I, I think like all things, there's uh, good faith criticism and, and bad faith criticism. And um, in as much as there absolutely is some some good faith criticism in there, I know uh, Kevin absolutely takes it um, to heart, as, as do I, as do all of us. And and it, um, you know, I think we take it, we learn from it and we try to make the next issue uh, even better. Uh, so by all means, keep on <laughs> giving us a hard time or uh, try, try to be kind, I guess, about it. But but this is all to say there's absolutely uh, good, solid constructional criticism uh, that that we've heard. And uh, next up, uh, and I think we're, we're pretty much uh, tying a bow on it, the uh, women's 150. And uh, also uh, really just yesterday, um, Kevin and I started really kind of working in earnest on the tag team list. Uh, so, yes, it is ranking season here at PWI. And uh, fair to say the biggest is, again, the PWI uh, 500. You don't want to miss it. Go over to pwi-online.com and pick up the issue. If you want to uh, download it right away, you'll have it on uh, your device. Uh, the new PWI app, uh, really awesome. It, it it goes much further than just kind of a PDF version 
uh, of the magazine, truly customized uh, for your device. Um, so uh, super convenient. But of course, if you want the actual uh, magazine in your hand, you can go ahead and do that, have it uh, delivered to your home. Um, or really the way to go is to subscribe and get some big savings off the cover price and make sure you don't miss any of these other big issues uh, coming out. Again, this is the big, big, the big busy season uh, with um, the three ranking issues. Then we move right into the, the year-end awards. Uh, you don't want to miss any one of them. So head on over to pwi-online.com and uh, also all your PWI needs could be met there. Uh, we're back with the PWI uh, weekly uh, newsletter. Um, and uh, so much more there. Pick up merchandise. We got a whole bunch of T-shirts. Uh, so again, go over to pwi-online.com. Uh, uh, let's talk about Antonio Inoki, uh, Brian. Uh, again, I was reading um, uh, Meltzer's biography. Or started to. I didn't anticipate how much he would have written. So I don't know that I even <laughs> ended up, um, you know, at the halfway point. But just so fascinating. And um, just one little thing that I took from there that that starts to. Uh, kind of touch on on his accomplishments. Uh, he drew the largest crowd ever to see a pro wrestling event in the world. He headlined the first $2 million gates in history. He was in a match viewed by more people on television over a 24-hour period than anyone in pro wrestling history. He set all-time pro wrestling gate records in 1976 and broke that record in 1989, 1990, 1992, 1994, 1995, and for his retirement show in 1998. Uh, the $7 million gate for his retirement show at the Tokyo Dome uh, remained the all-time record until WrestleMania twi- 25 in 2009. It's still the record in Japan. Uh, he headlined stadium shows in Japan, uh, the U.S., Brazil, Iraq, Thailand, Pakistan, Mexico, North Korea, the Philippines. Um, headlined drew big crowds and arenas in Russia, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Italy, Germany, Taiwan, China, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore. More people paid for tickets and watched Inoki's matches on television than any pro wrestler ever in Japan. Uh, just fascinating. And then you also look at the the wrestlers he he worked against and got victories over, um, you know, a submission victory, submission victories over Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. I mean, who could say that? And really, because his career spanned such a long time, he almost becomes sort of like the, the Forrest Gump of pro wrestling that he was... Um, he, he touched so many historical milestones in wrestling over, uh, you know, a half century. Uh, I, I don't know that you're ever going to have a, uh, a career like Antonio Inoki's. Uh, and yet, as I mentioned, I don't know that that many American fans are that familiar with him other than maybe a passing mention by WWE. They put him in the hall of fame, uh, 12 years ago and he got, you know, whatever it is, a little three minute, five minute thing. It, it wasn't. You know, by any means, the the main event of that uh, Hall of Fame class. Um, but w- what could you say to help put into perspective the significance of Antonio Noki in, in wrestling and maybe particularly in, in Japan? Well, it just show that, you know, when it comes to wrestling, that a lot of times and in fact, like, the, you know, people say this about all kinds of culture. Um, Americans can a lot of times be in their own little bubble, you know, and sort of think that. They're the be all and end all of everything. But um, and yes, professional wrestling, as we know, it did originate here. But if you're looking at wrestling as a global industry and a global sport, whatever you want to call it, um, Anoki is I mean, people talk about Mount Rushmore. I'm not the only one to say this, but a real Mount Rushmore 
he's he's got to be one of the candidates if you're looking at it from a global point of view. It's like um, and Meltzer's been good about this, too, because he's very measured and he does have that global perspective, because if we look at it globally, you know, somebody like El Santo in Mexico, right, probably the biggest mainstream star in his home country than anyone ever in the history of pro wrestling. You, you know, you know what I mean? Like no one in American pro wrestling has ever reached that level. And, and even the crazy thing about Inoki is his mentor, his trainer, uh, you know, Ricky Dozan was probably an even bigger star than he was, but you're talking about back in the fifties and sixties, you know, but if you, uh, and so his, me- his memory, even I think in the East is fading, but um, in his day, I mean, a, a guy that was drawing ratings figures that would dwarf what the Super Bowl gets in the United States, you know, and Enoki was at that level. And, and of course, amidst everything that you said, he also created new Japan pro wrestling, you know, one of the most important companies in the world. he, he um, had a part in helping to establish mixed martial arts. I mean, it sort of inventing what it was going to be in the 70s and 80s. Um, from from an American perspective, the interesting thing, probably the most well-known thing he ever did, <coughs> excuse me, and again, this was uh, now a long time ago, but was his fight with Muhammad Ali in 1976, which got him global press and definitely mainstream press in the United States. But the interesting thing at the time was in America, you know, that match is known today for being somewhat of a fiasco in a way because it was hyped up. And as a lot of people know, it wound up being at the last minute, you know, it was supposed to be a work. And then Ali started getting nervous that they were going to double cross him or something. I think Ali was originally supposed to lose and then he changed his mind. And so it became this mess where Inoki is just on the mat trying to avoid Ali for 15 rounds. But even at the time, one of the handicaps of trying to promote the match was um, most American fans didn't really know who Inoki was. So I think like, for example, Vince McMahon senior, who was involved in the promotion of that match, he wanted originally it to be Muhammad Ali and Bruno San Martino. But the interesting thing was from a global point of view, again, um, Inoki was the bigger star, which is crazy to think from our point of view, but he was, he was a huge, huge name. He also held um, briefly the WWF title from, you know, again, from an American perspective, that's something that that means something, you know, he but again, he was a, a big enough deal and he had this promotional partnership with the WWF in the 70s and early 80s that he was able to to pull those strings and have that kind of influence that when Bob Backlund came to Japan, he beat him cleanly for the title and then wound up losing it back to him. But, uh, you know, American wrestling was very important to Inoki, and I think it was very important to a lot of the Japanese fans and even the Japanese stars of that era because they recognized that that is where pro wrestling came from. That was kind of like its fountainhead. And like if you were, you know, a star there, if you held a world title there, it was very special. So that's kind of like why Giant Baba was always pushing to hold the NWA title because he, you know, was partners with them. And Inoki pushed to hold the WWF title because it was that prestige of. I hold a world title as recognized in America, you know, 
but the, all that is to say that he, he basically did it all in the business. I mean, he got his tag team with Giant Baba is one of the most revered tag teams in the history of Japanese wrestling. And that was even before they, they broke away from each other and started their own wrestling companies. That was when they were still working for the JWA, which was the original Japanese wrestling company. But, you know, he was already a star before he even had his own company. And then once he had his own company, I mean, as we all know, promoter wrestlers, right? I mean, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, he could do no wrong. He was one of the most massive wrestling stars on the planet by far. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's so fascinating about that is, uh, and, and you touched on it, um, how these stars who were much bigger in their country than we ever had a wrestling star in ours. I mean, when, right. when you talk about... Uh, who are the biggest American stars in, in wrestling history? Certainly of of the last, you know, 50 years, you've got Hulk Hogan, you've got Steve Austin, you've got, you know, Andre John the Cena Giant. And, and The Rock, uh, Andre the Giant. None of them touched, uh, came close culturally as um, Inoki was in Japan or El Santo was in, in Mexico. And yet in, in uh, both those cases and so many others, those stars were looking for legitimacy in the United States. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, because... The with Ricky Dozan, the, the, the predecessor of Inoki, that's sort of how he got his rub because pro wrestling came to Japan during the American occupation uh, after World War II. So it, it literally was this transfusion where you had American wrestlers going over there, teaching the Japanese, you know, creating this impact. And Ricky Dozan set himself up as the ultimate Japanese superhero. Uh, even though he actually was North Korean, which was a, a deeply guarded secret, or rather just Korean, but he he was defending the the you know the honor of Japan against what would very often be the American heels, and this is how pro wrestling started in Japan. So I mean, even look Inoki's name; he took his first name because his name was Kanji. He took his first name from Antonino Raka, who. He grew up watching because I believe Anoki actually grew up in um, Brazil or spent a lot of time there. And Antonino Rocca was was um, Argentinian. So he he idolized him. And, and uh, you know, th this was a big deal. Like in 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 Japan, they had the in those days in the 70s, they had the Madison Square Garden um, Tag League in Japan. But it was named for Madison Square Garden to give it prestige, even though 99% of the fans who came to see wrestling in Madison Square Garden had no idea it even existed. But they were looking for the rub, and, uh, you know, Inoki would sometimes come to the garden, you know, as being a promotional partner of Vince Sr., and even though, again, he was never the main event or things like that, but um, Usually everywhere else outside the United States, he would be. Like you said, all those countries where he headlined. Um, it just goes to show that wrestling really is this global thing. And, and people like El Santo and, and Baba and Inoki and Ricky Dozan, I mean, and, and there are probably others, are cultural icons. If not greater than any American star, which I think they were, certainly on the same level as the very, very, very biggest American or even North American pro wrestling superstars that have ever been created. Yeah. And interestingly, WWF even created a title essentially for Inoki that, that he held um, for, I think, more than 10 years and, and up until 1989 the, was the, the World Martial Arts title, um, which 
I imagine most WWF fans watching wrestling at the time in the 80s weren't even aware existed. Uh, I think it was only defended a handful of time, but but it was, uh, I guess, sort of a gesture to to Inoki and, and something that that he could uh, brag about holding a title uh, in, in the WWF uh, for all those years. Um, wh- one of the things that I found really interesting uh, about him is that you know, he was this this hybrid of of different styles in that he he absolutely uh, encapsulated that fighting spirit and that uh, sort of uh, honor that um, is Japanese uh, pro wrestling and is Japanese culture uh, in a lot of ways, but also very much mixed in the showmanship of uh, American uh, wrestling. And uh, I think that's how you you ended up stuff with with stuff like Ali versus uh, Inoki, and he very much embraced these big spectacle kind of gimmick shows, and uh, even before Ali and after Ali, uh, that was kind of his calling card, right? It was bringing in sports stars from from all different sports, and I think he ended up fighting like football players and basketball players and Olympians yeah. and and karate <laughs> experts, and that was sort of um, what he did. And uh, he uh, uh, really appreciated kind of uh, a wrestling as spectacle. Yeah, his w- what differentiated him from Baba, because, of course, <clears throat> they started out together. They actually debuted on the same day in 1962. Yeah, but they went on, you know, Anoki started New Japan. Baba started All Japan, which at that time, you know, in, in those days, 70s, 80s, 90s, they really were equals. They They were. They were rivals. In these days, All Japan has kind of shrunk quite a bit. But in those days, they were equal rivals. But the difference was Baba would Baba's style was he would have a, a lot more American stars because he also was a bigger star in America than Inoki was because uh, they he he had that giant appeal like that Andre the Giant kind of appeal. But what Inoki did in his company was he tried to emphasize the the kind of combat sports side of things so like um the strong style right i mean that was his creation what we call the strong style because he wanted japanese wrestlers to see or pro wrestlers in general to appear to be the toughest athletes in the world so he encouraged them to really kind of work stiffly and make it look as convincing as they could like you said he would bring in a lot of outside athletes especially combat athletes uh, to try to show that wrestlers were the toughest. And the 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 Ali thing started that way because th- there were comments made. Uh, I can't remember exactly what back and forth. And I think some of them were genuine comments talking about how a wrestler could beat a boxer anytime. And, you know, even Muhammad Ali wouldn't be able to, you know, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And wind of it got to Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali was a wrestling fan and he kind of accepted the challenge. But that was very important to Inoki. In fact, in later years, in some ways, it it wound up hurting New Japan a little bit. Because as a lot of people know, when MMA started to get really big, and that happened in Japan earlier because of pride and things, even in the late 80s, early 90s, he was having his pro wrestlers uh, have these shoot fights with MMA fighters. And a lot of them were really getting beaten badly. Yeah, And it started to hurt the reputation of, of wrestling, but in Japan, but he would, um, he would have a a lot of his stars would have to go through that process. He wanted them to fight MMA and to get these legit 
fighting credentials. Actually, um, Shinsuke Nakamura was one of the last ones. Shinsuke Nakamura was one of the last kind of protégés of Inoki. And as people know, he has an MMA background, and that's largely because of Inoki kind of pushing him to do that, to get um, to get that kind of experience. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting that Inoki's um, reputation in Japan was as this, uh, you know, sort of the ultimate fighter, and and I mean that sort of literally, not 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 just UFC, but um, uh, you know, the true fighting spirit. I mean, I was watching these videos of people lining up to be slapped by him, and I guess the mythology is that he yeah. would sort of transfer that fighting spirit um, by by slapping him, uh, and yet uh, I I know he had some legitimate background in karate when he was uh, younger, uh, but a lot of this was sort of an act, right? I mean, it was it was sort of his gimmick that yes. he was this, you know, the ultimate tough guy, a uh, legit fighter, and um, people bought it and, and he sold it uh, really well. And uh, as, as far as the Ali fight, which is what I think most American fans at, at least have heard of, uh, maybe we could talk about that, about that a little bit more. And and it, it's fascinating reading about like sort of certainly before WrestleMania, th- this was uh, s- such a, a, a big show with so much invested. And you see just some of the dollar figures that were were uh, floated around. I, ge- I guess the, the deal was and he never ended up getting it. But Ali was supposed to make something like six million dollars. Uh, and, and this is in 1976 money. Uh, and it was. Broadcast all over the world it, throughout the United States. It was closed circuit before, um, uh, you know, Starcade and WrestleMania used the same model. Uh, and I just it, it it's so interesting. And at least the United States, it was essentially a bust, right? Well, it was. I mean, it especially from a a critical uh, point of view, like the response to it. Like I remember, my grandfather was involved in boxing in the seventies, and his attitude towards it, because he would talk about it, was like in the boxing community, especially, it was considered one of the biggest fiascos ever, almost like kind of an embarrassment for Ali. And and also it, it hurt Ali, for his career. Uh, people saw it as um, a career mistake that he made because he wound up getting very hurt in that fight. Yeah. I don't know how, how known that is because what Inoki was doing, because Inoki was being very defensive because Ali was going in there to try to knock him out. And that is not what they had originally agreed to do. And so Inoki was being very cautious and he stayed on the ground laying down almost the entire fight. And what he was doing was he kept kicking Ali in the legs really hard and his legs by the end of the fight were bleeding. And, and uh, apparently I think he was rushed to the hospital after. And they even said, I don't know how much of an, urban legend this is that his mobility was really hampered afterwards and he had to change his fighting style and he became slower and this kind of thing because he already was not a young man by that point he had been fighting for you know 15 plus maybe close to 20 years by that point so i mean he um the the fight was promotionally it was interesting because it was this interpromotional thing in a time when that kind of stuff wasn't typically done. Like Vince McMahon senior was sort of the point man within the wrestling side of things to promote the fight. And what they did was, like you said, they pumped it closed circuit to arenas all over the world, but particularly in North America, 
you had the regional wrestling promoters in different territories, they were getting it in their territory. So like Vince, Vince would work with Vern Gagne or he'd work with the Sheik or Stu Hart or Eddie Graham to get it uh, pumped into their territories. But what, and everybody knows about the Shea stadium side of it. Like that's probably the most famous one again, because it was Vince senior's show. But what they did was, and this was partly because they were worried that uh, a lot of American fans may not have known who Anoki was, what they did was they would show the Anoki fight on closed circuit from from Japan, but they would also have their own live matches taking place in the arena or stadium. So like um, in Shea, Vince Sr. had Stan Hansen versus Bruno San Martino. He had Andre the Giant versus Chuck Wepner. And those matches were there to sort of like um, make it more of an attraction to American fans. But there were other shows like that, like I think – they had one in Texas with where Terry Funk was headlining. They had one in Florida where Jack Briscoe was headlining. I mean, in California, they had one. So this was happening all over the country. I think Roddy Piper wrestled on one of them. And and so they would show the Anoki fight. And in some cases, they would also show the Andre the Giant Chuck Wepner fight coming out of Shea because that was another boxer wrestler match. But it was a very big deal in the wrestling business at the time. Um, Freddie Blassie was involved. They had him as sort of Ali's um, mouthpiece, as if Ali needed a mouthpiece, right. but where they would make appearances on talk shows and things. And it was, um, I think Ali, there's that famous clip where Ali showed up at a WWF TV taping and Gorilla Monsoon put him in the airplane spin. I don't know if people have seen that. Was that before the Anoki fight? Was that sort of build up to this? I believe it was. Yes, I believe it was a build up. He showed up. And this is crazy when you think about it. This is one of the most famous human beings of the 20th century. <laughs> and he showed up in the in the front row of like their Allentown TV taping or whatever it was, you know, in Pennsylvania. And for a, for a squash match that Gorilla Monsoon was having. And he got in the ring and Monsoon uh, put him in the airplane spin. And, and you can see if you look into it, there's video of like Vince McMahon Jr. showing up in the AWA and, and talking to Vern Gagne about what a big deal the fight's going to be. And it's this kind of like crossing of worlds going on to come together to promote this huge fight between the one of the biggest stars globally in wrestling and the biggest sports uh, attraction in the world at the time. Ali. Yeah. And and again, I mean, it was seen as a, a disaster because, uh, yeah, it was whatever it was, 15 rounds of Inoki lying on the ground and um, Muhammad Ali waiting for him to get up. And so the story, as uh, uh, I think certainly American fans uh, took it, was Inoki is a coward. And yes. He, he wasn't willing to fight Ali. But as you touched Even on, Ali said that in the post-match interview – in in the ring, he said something to that effect. He called him a coward. I think he had even harsher language for him just to call him just sort of like a, you know, like a complete wimp, basically. Right. And all these years later, as, you know, uh, uh, MMA has been popularized and different fighting styles um, have emerged, you can see that fight through a different lens and you yes. can see what Anoki was doing strategically, which was sort of brilliant. And as you touched on, in in some ways, may have done more damage to to Ali than than most boxing uh, opponents uh, did. And uh, that match ultimately ended in a draw, right? 
Yeah, it was a draw and a very unpopular decision, obviously. I, I watched it um, just to sort of like, I'd never seen the whole thing before. And it's interesting because you could tell that there is a lot of, uh, what's the word, um, frustration. There's a lot of animosity and it's very real. And I mean on the part of Inoki, because I th- you know the sense I get is that he really was disgusted. Like that's not what he wanted the fight to be. Um, and by the end of it, when the bell rings, he gets up and he just waves off Ali in disgust. He just lifts his arms up. And this is not something he would typically do. I mean, he was usually pretty stoic. And he just lifts his arms up and just does this gesture of just like, just get away from me. This is, you're disgusting. Like he really was disappointed in how it turned out, which was very different from what he envisioned it was going to be. But honestly, the type of fight that I think Anoki wanted to have, you could have only had if it really was a work. Because the second he stood up and was toe-to-toe with Ali, Ali would have probably knocked him out pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So that wouldn't have worked. I mean, I I imagine the the best scenario would have been a a worked fight, you know, for, for all involved. And um, and and I don't know how legitimate this is, but but I think Meltzer talked about sort of what the initial plan was uh, for the fight, and you know it was one of these deals where everybody gets to save face, um, and and you could put on an entertaining fight, and um, you know it, 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 you'd think it would. I don't know who, who this fight really did any favors for, even though I don't know that it um, is it, first say that this did help Inoki's reputation helped boost him in Japan because I think certainly the story that he told uh, in Japan was different than than yes. the rest of the world certainly uh, American fans took in that he he survived you know 15 rounds with um, the greatest boxer in the world uh, did a lot of damage to him uh, so he was able to save face certainly among his fans and it's interesting it's it bears pointing out that they they did become great friends and they did have a lot of respect for each other in years later because like even the the collision in korea well that's what it was called here but the show in north korea where it was a two-night event where enoki fought rick flair wrestled rick flair in front of you know the hundred ninety thousand people muhammad ali was also there and very prominently, and I think that was largely because of Anoki. Anoki kind of used his influence to bring Muhammad Ali to the show because they did, they had this history with each other. And I think there was actually, as you know, especially as tempers cooled down, there was a lot of respect there between them. Yeah, yeah. And all these years later, we're starting to talk about it, you know, the, the strategy that uh, Anoki used in that fight is somewhat commonplace in, in UFC. And right. even today, um, I think a lot of fans don't get it. It's not the most fan-friendly uh, a style. You know, you'll you'll see some big fights that are hyped up and people get excited for, and it ends up with one guy just kicking the the, the shins and the legs of, of another fighter, and it doesn't make for the most exciting uh, fight. But but you see them at the end, and you'll see, you know, welts all up and down their their legs. It's all purple. Some guys are essentially knocked out standing up because they can't continue because they they can't support their weight on their own legs. So um, there's no question that Inoki was doing some real damage uh, uh, with that offense, even if it wasn't the most exciting uh, thing in the world. Yeah, um, I think. But, 
I just want to say one thing about that, though. I think the problem at the time in the United States, from the point of view of of American fans or even just Western fans, but especially in America, was really the only kind of fighting sport that they were familiar with at all that had any traction in the U.S. was boxing. And we got to remember that in this time period, you know, they didn't have kickboxing. Martial arts was not a big deal in the U.S. at all. They didn't have, there was no MMA or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. None of that stuff had any kind of foothold in the U.S. It was strictly boxing. So, you know, where you stood up straight, you looked person in the eye and you punched him in the face and you were right in front of him. And so like anything that deviated from that, it looked like something ridiculous, like you like you were a coward and you didn't want to get hit. So you were hiding. They just uh, there wasn't the level of nuance and understanding of different fighting disciplines among the American audience at that time. Yeah. Yeah. What's also interesting about Anoki is despite being this huge cultural figure and, and one of the biggest stars uh, in the history of wrestling, he um, certainly in the last several years and, and decades didn't have the best reputation in Japan, right? I mean, in part was um, he, he was blamed for some New Japan's uh, misfortunes uh, in the early 2000s, as you touched on, when he was booking a lot of these, he was sort of setting up his wrestlers to fail in these uh, matches with legit MMA fighters. Uh, there were all kinds of scandals. He he also had a career in uh, politics um, that uh, were a lot of, uh, he ended up in a lot of scandals. Uh, all kinds of accusations of of corruptions and kind of dirty business dealings. So again, he didn't even even today, uh, as I understood it, there was a lot of sort of like um, uncertainty about how his death would be uh, handled uh, by New Japan. And I and I you know I guess they they they'll they they've paid him some respects, and I think there's plans to do more. Uh, but again, not not necessarily. Uh, as celebrated in in the last several years, right? Well, I thought it was very telling that all you needed to know to understand that was the fact that in recent years, certainly since he stepped away as the chairman of New Japan and since he was you know, involved in politics and things, there was very little mention of him, acknowledgement of him in the contemporary New Japan product. Like, you, you never... If you were a young person watching New Japan, you know, in this day and age, um, you wouldn't even know who he was, to be honest with you, because they never referenced him. It wasn't they didn't treat him like this legacy figure, this father figure like you might imagine they would. And that probably was the unspoken result of the mixed feelings they had towards him. Um, Of course, you know, trying to in a very respectful way, they're not going to badmouth him or anything but just to not really talk much about him it was very telling that they that that was the case uh but again when he passed of course they did from my point of view anyway i mean they did the right thing and they acknowledged it and they gave him the respect and the credit that is due i mean he was the founder of the company he was the father of the company and still the biggest star that they ever had of course he was you know booking himself to be the biggest star they ever had but he was and um, like they made him the honorary, you know, uh, chairman of all J- of right. New Japan. They're they're doing that officially at coming up soon. That kind of thing, you know. But they did it all posthumously. They didn't do it in his lifetime. It's sort of like a lot of times what WWE does with legends that they have a lot of 
personal issues with, like a Randy Savage is a great example. And then when they pass away, sometimes is when they get honored uh, the most because they don't have to actually work with them, you know? Yeah, yeah. The other bit of overlap there, it's Vince McMahon himself and and what we saw play out earlier this year. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, you can make the case for them being the number one and number two most influential uh, figures uh, in the sport. And again, similarly, sort of left their company not on the best of terms and with real kind of complicated uh, legacies, where on one hand, Right. You, you know, you owe so much to them. You, you owe the existence of this company uh, to them. And yet you also know along the way they, they did a lot of damage. Uh, so, yeah, a complicated legacy, a complicated guy, fascinating figure. Um, thankfully, uh, you know, he, he, I guess word was out for, for a number of years now that he wasn't in the best of health. And uh, Stu Sack some years ago um, made the decision to give him the, uh, Stanley Weston award, I, I think in 2018, glad we were able to do that. That, that sort of PWI's lifetime achievement award. And, you know, we think about our own business. Uh, you look at those, uh, magazine covers in the seventies and eighties and, and Inoki was on his, uh, share of, of many. I, I knew the first I saw Inoki was, uh, in magazines working with Hulk Hogan in those, um, uh, initial IWGP, uh, mm-hmm. title, uh, matches, um, and e- even back then with sort of the, the limited knowledge in the United States of um, his contributions, I kind of got that he was a big deal. Uh, so, uh, yeah, fascinating figure. And, and certainly uh, our condolences go out to uh, him and his family and his fans. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, of more uh, current events. Um, we had Extreme Rules over uh, the weekend, the fine show. Um, I think the big news, is, as was expected, was the return of Bray Wyatt, the, the latest in in many returns. It really is kind of a, a fascinating, fun time to be a fan now because it sort of feels like, um, you know, the the Monday Night War uh, era where every week it's like, oh, you're bringing in this guy, we're bringing in this guy. So we had, uh, a, you know, Bray Wyatt on Saturday. We had Renee Paquette show up on AEW on, on Wednesday. And it does feel like there's kind of like volleying back and forth who you're going to have show up. But certainly Bray's is the the biggest uh, in a while in terms of uh, returns, and his return was uh, promoted very heavily, and it's apparent that they've got some big plans for him. And, and just looking on social media, you see some fans uh, already talking about, you know, is this the guy who dethrones Roman Reigns? Is this WrestleMania? And uh, I got to say, I, I, I'm very much sort of be careful what you wish for. I mean, I, th- I think that huh. there is some romanticizing of of uh, what what Bray Wyatt brought to the table over the last several years. And I'm happy to see him get employed. I think he's a, a super creative guy. And um, if handled right, could very much be an asset to WWE. But it is also a fact that some of the, the worst matches, worst segments, worst angles that I've seen uh, certainly in the last several years and, and maybe in wrestling history involved Bray Wyatt. So he's very much a guy who needs an editor. Um, and I, I you know, I, I, I look at him and I'm not exactly sure what you do with a guy. Where, where do you think this is going? Well, I think there's a lot to be said there because one thing is I think, I don't think he's the person that beats Roman Reigns. I don't think he should be, but I do think you can get, um, a storyline out of it because, of course, there's the history, right? I mean, that's where Roman Reigns as champion begins. The, you know, his his title run begins. 
So you have that kind of history. He has a history with Bray Wyatt. You could do something there. I don't think that it should end with Bray being the champion. Um, I don't know. I, I if you if you beat him, I think maybe you do one of those kind of you know bizarre finishes that he's known for. But I think that he is more of a he to me is like an Undertaker figure in the sense that. Um, he's sort of outside, he's in his own world, you know, like they always said about the undertaker, he doesn't really need the title. He's kind of his own special attraction. I think Bray Wyatt can be that. Like, I think a generation from now, when people look back, that'll be sort of how he's remembered as sort of like the closest thing that we had right now to sort of what the undertaker was. And I think he should be treated that way as a special kind of attraction. I, I don't think he should have any kind of long title runs or things like that. But I do think it's exciting because it takes you back to those days when that was one of the most <clears throat> fun things about wrestling was outside stars coming in, people that had been gone for a while coming back. And we there was a period where you didn't really see that so much anymore because it was really just WWE. So that's kind of fun. But I also think he's the classic example. You talked about how he was involved with some of the worst things you've ever seen, and he just got super, super stale. But he is the classic example of of why it's so important that guys get a chance to <clears throat> go away and come back. You know, that yeah. used to be the norm in wrestling. You, you know, you started to get a little stale. You left. You went somewhere else. You came back later, and you were hot again. And look, that's what happened with Bray. I mean, you know— he is his character was as dead as dirt when he left and now he's back and he's the hottest thing around and that's how it should be that's how it should be for a lot of other guys that get stale we probably wouldn't be complaining about how stale a lot of the wrestlers today are if they had a chance to do what he did yeah i really agree and and i like the undertaker comparison uh because it's another thing that that i think people forget about the undertaker certainly in the first I know half of his career, but certainly the first five, six, seven years of his career, his matches were terrible, right? I mean, you 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 think about, um, you know, whether it was uh, Giant Gonzalez or Kamala or Undertaker versus Undertaker, these were not good matches. They they were um, awful. Um, but what you remember was the entrance and uh, him, you know, locking people in a casket and the promos um, and and all that stuff really worked. And uh, I, I think that's where they got to go. And maybe they are going with Bray Wyatt because, uh, you know, I, I've seen bell to bell Bray Wyatt be really good. I remember the, the, the feud he had early on in his run with uh, John Cena produced some some great matches. One of them, I think, was PWI match of the year back in, I don't know, 2014, maybe. Um, so he's uh, certainly capable of good matches. He needs to be in pretty good shape. There's a question about that. I mean, we only saw him for uh, a second or two at Extreme Rules. As we're recording this, I think he's supposed to be on SmackDown uh, tonight. So I, I'm interested in his conditioning. Uh, but, yeah, I absolutely agree that that less is more with him and that he should be kind of the special attraction. This generation's Undertaker, break him out for the, the big spectacle uh, matches by and large, I think he should win, uh, but also like Undertaker during most of his career, be outside that world title scene. 
right? Also, I guess Andre would be kind of a comparison, right? That he is a special attraction on your show, that it is about the entrance and the gimmickry and all that stuff. Um, I, I hope they keep the lights on, right? <laughs> and, and not break <laughs> out the red light bulbs, which just made his matches that much uh, more unpleasant to watch. Um, so, and and I do think that y- you need to rein it in a little. I mean, like, I'm I'm not looking to um sort of like constrain his his creativity uh too much but it it can get out of hand uh you know and we and we saw some of you know what that could look like at the height of the firefly Fun- and and i know there are people who love this stuff and will you know uh, uh dispute all of this uh but i do think there's a happy medium where bray white can do his act uh and and you know even in stuff that I hated, there were glimpses of stuff that I really loved. I remember, I think it was one of his last appearances at WrestleMania last year in Tampa, that match with Randy Orton that was built up for so long. And this was after he was uh, set on fire and murdered in the middle of the ring. Uh, <laughs> and then he comes out for the opening match. I think it was the second night of uh, WrestleMania. And the entrance was spectacular, right? I mean, I think he like walked through a tunnel and then he sort of like... Uh, went through some metamorphosis and he came, he, you know, he started going down the tunnel burn. Then he came out the other side, the fiend. Uh, and that was all really awesome. And then delivered a horrendous match. That was just, just terrible. Um, and that, that's so much of the story of Bray Wyatt. So I do think, um, yeah, there's a way it, it'll be interesting to see what triple H's touch is with him versus, uh, Vince McMahon's, uh, touch. And on, on one hand, you know, I think the reputation is that McMahon was uh, more of a, a, a firm hand, um, but but maybe that's not what's needed here. Maybe Triple H, I th- I, you know, it's one of the fascinating things um, about Triple H is that he can relate to these wrestlers in a way that Vince McMahon never could because he's done it right. And and uh, he has been a wrestler, so uh, he can offer and, and, and at the highest levels. So. Uh, beyond just a boss, he could relate as a colleague. So I'm really interested in what the Triple H version of Bray Wyatt looks like. And what I think is important too is he can also relate as a fan. Right. That's a that's very important. And and because because that's one of the I think his strong suits is because sometimes it can be a weakness of a promoter or a booker if you're just too much of a fan. Like I think sometimes that affects what Tony Khan does, for example. But but he's got the best aspect of wrestling fandom, which is that he always has seemed to have an understanding from a fan perspective of what works and what doesn't, um, not just what he personally enjoys and doesn't. And um, so I, I'm very interested in how the Bray Wyatt thing is going to be handled in the Triple H era, because then we'll really see how much of that was Vince McMahon. Uh, how because I find it very hard to believe that Vince McMahon would give that much freedom to anybody. You know, you know what I mean. So I almost think like maybe a lot of the more over the top or groan inducing things, they may have been coming from Vince. Like I know people, a lot of people said that Bray was allowed to kind of do his own promos. That's one thing they let him do. Um, but I don't know if everything was him. So I'm curious to see what this is going to look like now, because this is a whole different ball game in, yeah. in WWE. Yeah. I'll say that the, um, you know, judging beyond the one or two minutes that we saw him at extreme rules, the, the build for it, uh, I thought was great. Right. I mean, it, it's sort of like, 
uh, WWE sports entertainment at its best. And, um, you know, with the, 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 the codes, the, what do they call them? The, the QR codes on TV and just the little hit, you know, this is not new in some ways. Um, but I think they took it to another level and it, it was fun that WWE was sort of playing this game with fans all along. I think people could put together, you know, that this was uh, Bray Wyatt, but uh, the way they drew it out little by little, even having uh, Triple H on on SmackDown uh, last week with the, the microphone with the code on it, that stuff was just brilliant, really, really cool and and really build. That's the, the best uh, of this. I mean, um, you know, versus the maybe more kind of Vince Russo school of just shock everybody at every moment. Um, this was you were kind of bringing fans along little by little, drawing it out, um, even the teases of there would be a date and the date would come and go and all you'd get was another clue. And then the big payoff at Extreme Rules. Uh, that was great. Really a lot of fun. And and by and large, you know, WWE has been fun lately, you know, and and, and it, it's it's not the greatest WWE I've ever seen, not the greatest wrestling I've ever seen. But I do think that that the hallmark of Triple H in these uh, early months is just by and large removing the stupidity. Right. And, and there's, there's a little bit, you know, sprinkled on, you know, some frustrations here and, uh, and there, not everything uh, works, but uh, I was at raw on uh, Monday, the big season premiere and uh, you know, between the return of the good brothers and, and um, the interaction between uh, Mysterio and Dominic and, uh, the the Brock Lesnar surprise, the DX reunion, uh, a title change with with Seth Rollins, um, all this stuff is just like as a fan, you're just watching a show, and more times than not, you're sort of enjoying it, and there's kind of a smile on your face, and uh, just it, it it's just an entirely watchable product, which uh, frankly WWE has has not been uh, consistently in years. Yeah, and and again, it comes from that perspective, I think, of wanting to give the fans what you perceive they want, which is such a simple formula. But in you know, in recent years, everyone has bemoaned a lot in with WWE about how they seem to want to just force things constantly, yeah. and it's almost like this war that Vince McMahon was having with the fans. Of yeah. Like, yeah. I am going to, I am going to tell you what to like. Right. Be, right. Because yeah, I've always sorry conflict all the time. Yeah. Right. And he was basically always doing that and it used to work and he didn't want to change. It was like, you know what? I always told you what to like and you went right along with it. And now all of a sudden you don't want to go along with it. Well, the, the hell with you. <laughs> and, and so right. it became this war. And I think that war is over. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but you have now Triple H, Paul Levesque, somebody who I think is more interested in just going with what works. Um, a lot of what he's been doing, it's so obvious, is this attitude of like very obviously saying there were a lot of stupid decisions made before. Things that were working that were thrown out the window, people that were very, very good that were released, things that were abandoned. And you know what? We're going to go back to a lot of those yeah. things because they worked and there was no reason to stop doing it. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. Not saying that he wants to just go backwards, but he's he's acknowledging that there were a lot of dumb decisions made in the past couple of years. So let's kind of like go back to the well and figure out what actually works and doesn't work. Yeah, I think you touched on it before. I mean, he really is sort of the the, the middle ground between Vince McMahon and Tony Khan, where Tony Khan 
uh, maybe too much fan service there, right? And 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 too much of a perspective from fans. And we've seen um, the consequences of that in in not necessarily uh, having kind of your your house in order and having um, uh, you know inmates running the the whole place and 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 all the fallout uh, from that. And on the other hand, McMahon maybe uh, uh, too much pushing his way and kind of a disdain for fans. And I know better. And, and, you know, you're going to eat your supper, whether you like it or not. And then you have Triple H in the middle who has the, you know, the perspective of having been a fan uh, and a wrestler and essentially a McMahon, right. Being married into the family. Um, he really can bring the, the you know, it, it's, it's a unique perspective that almost he's the only person in the world who could, who could bring uh, to wrestling. So it, it's really fun to see uh, where he's taking it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about AEW. And, uh, you know, they had one of the craziest stretches of a wrestling company uh, in in years with, you know, everything between CM Punk and all the, the lack of stability and people getting suspended. And you put the title on CM Punk and then he just mother refs the whole company and he ends fighting with the executive VPs backstage. And so they seem to have kind of settled uh, in now, um, put the title on John Moxley, who feels like the right person right now in terms of bringing some stability um, to the company. And beyond that, he gets this five-year uh, contract. Uh, he's made it clear, I'm AEW for life. I'm not going uh, anywhere. Um, and it feels like things have kind of settled down. So after all that chaos, uh, what, what do you think of this this newest version of AEW? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to be as optimistic as you. I don't know. It's certainly not, uh, you know, at the height of, you know, the night of all, all out. <laughs> but it's still, I mean, we just had this new, like, Sammy Guevara debacle with Andrade Alidolo yep. and... It's become almost like darkly comic, just that the, you know, people are joking that the, the worked version is the NXT parking lot, right? But, <laughs> but in, but in AEW, it's for real. And that's just not a good look. I mean, it just looks like you have no control. The fans have now latched onto it. I mean, I thought it was very cool that Sammy Guevara got all that real heat from the audience, but it also shows that your fans are well aware of what's going on. And I don't know where that goes. I, you know, obviously I, I don't think the company's in any kind of immediate danger or anything. I'm, I, I would never go that far, especially cause we just saw, you know, the, the, um, the chief content officer of Warner brothers discovery talking about how they want to do more, you know, non-wrestling content with AEW, like sort of like what roads to the top was, and if they're interested in developing that kind of stuff with them, they obviously have long-term goals for them. So I don't think they're in any kind of immediate danger, but they have to get things under control. And I don't know what that takes. Maybe it takes Tony Khan finally saying, I need some help here because I think um, a big, and I know he's been doing that, but he hasn't been doing that from a creative standpoint. I think, and this is this has been said before by others, but one of the main reasons that he even started AEW was the appeal of being able to book wrestling himself, and uh, that's why he takes everything on himself. So it's almost like if he were to stop doing that or have someone else do it for him, I think to him it would almost defeat the purpose of why he did all this in the first place. 
But I think he needs to come to that understanding of maybe I get some more wrestling people involved in this, in the creative side of things. Um, and maybe I have a, a better infrastructure of how to deal with these issues when they happen. Uh, you know, he had that interview with Ariel Helwani who was complaining and the other people have done this about how frustrating it is because he won't actually answer any questions about yeah. anything. All he wants to do is just promote. Yep. And there's a lot of <laughs> I, I can say I, I read that I, and I yeah. very much sympathized, you know, having <laughs> talked to, to Tony Khan. There you go. No, Ariel got a, a hard time, um, but I thought he was spot on. And um, yeah, again, I, it, it was my experience exactly with him. But and it does feel this. like the difference between talking to um, a a wrestling person and talking to a fan who is um, I don't want to say pretending to be a wrestling person because he's a super influential important figure in wrestling. Um, but but yeah, I I there there's uh, a lot of fanboy in him, and I think sometimes it's it's to the detriment of um, business. Yes, yes. And, and it's uh, you know. All you got to do is look at, you know, you're talking about Ariel Hawani. I mean, look at the interview he did with Tony Khan and then look at the interview he did with Triple H. I mean, for God's sake, yeah. it, it was polished, professional. You got the sense that I'm talking to somebody really important in the industry and it's a very revealing interview, very revealing, surprisingly candid about Vince, about his goals, his ambitions as, you know, being in charge now and you didn't get any of that from the Tony Khan thing. It re and I'm not, you know, again, I, people say, well, they're not the same person. And Tony Khan isn't Vince McMahon. He's not Triple H. Okay, that's fine. But there are qualities of theirs that he might do well to adopt. <laughs> um, yeah. And some of it know. is just inexperience and and youth. He, he's a, a young guy, new in wrestling. And, um, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, uh, he might be the, the best of, of all of them. I mean, maybe just as it, it, Triple H, who's the new guy running WWE, is in his, what, early, mid-50s now, been in the business for 30 years, married into the McMahon family for what, close to 20. Uh, so in some ways, a little bit of an unfair comparison to somebody yes, who it is. Uh, just came into the business and has done a lot of good. I mean, it, it, AEW, week in, week out, is still a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And again, I don't want to make that mistake of saying like, well, he needs to be more like this person or whatever. But um, you you also need to, you know, messaging is important. Optics are important uh, from a fan point of view, from the locker room point of view. I mean, they're looking at you as the leader. Um, these things are important for holding everything together because um, they don't want to become, you know, like WCW, that's certainly not what anybody would want to see happen because there's a lot of great things about AEW and what they're doing, but you almost get the sense that um, because they're such a new company and for a lot of their short history, they've been the hottest thing in wrestling. They've been the cool place. They need to kind of learn how to take the good with the bad. You're not always going to be the darling of the industry. You're going to have to take a beating sometimes. There's going to be times where you're not the cool place to be and you can't just kind of throw temper tantrums or come apart at the seams when everybody isn't kissing your feet and saying how great you are. You know, that's part of 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 how this whole thing is run. You, you have to be able to take the blows, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know I think another thing 
with Tony Khan and AEW that, again, comes with experience and age is understanding pacing in wrestling, right? And, um, you know, I, I can remember the early days of going to Ring of Honor shows, and uh, this was when Gabe Sapolsky was running the place, a young Gabe Sapolsky, and every match was swinging for the fences, right? Everything was trying to be a five-star match. Everything was going 30 minutes, 35 minutes with 100 near falls. The opening match, you know, and by the time the main event came into the ring, you were exhausted. And I remember one of my first Ring of Honor shows, and, and on one hand, you're like, wow, this is some of the most spectacular athletics I've ever seen. And on the other hand, by the end of the night, you're like, oh, come on, will you just pin them already? You know, because <laughs> uh, it, it's just too much. The yeah, flip side of that is, is you, you think to sort of like the... Um, the, the, the prototypical Vince McMahon booked wrestling card, a WrestleMania, where there's some matches in the mid card, which are kind of stinkers, you know, or, or you know, uh, or, or different. I mean, you think of like uh, more recently, uh, uh, Sami Zayn versus Johnny Knoxville at WrestleMania. It was like different. It was kind of a spectacle. Some people liked it. Some people hated it. Or you'd have like a Kali match in the middle. And it's not defending any of these um, on their own, but appreciating them as, um, you know, a wrestling show as as more than some of its parts. And sometimes watching AEW, it still feels like a, a, a little kind of uh, of that indie mentality where everybody's got to get their stuff in and every match is like, you know, it, and, and it feels like he's playing for, for Dave Meltzer more than anybody else. And, and yeah, Meltzer loves them, you know, but but you, you watch, uh, read the reviews in the observer for almost AEW pay-per-view, any AEW pay-per-view, first match, four stars, second match, four and a half stars, third match, you know, three and a half stars. It's just, everything is a home run. And when everything is kind of nothing is right. It, it's, it, nothing stands out. And, uh, that's something not that you, you know, my advice would be to deliberately dog anything uh, on the show, but I do think you have to learn a little bit more about pacing and different wrestling styles and, and, um, you know, th there's a place for a Braun Sto Strowman on a show, right? Or uh, a Bray Wyatt and his theatrics. It it, it all kinds of go goes into the soup. And um, at its best, you get something that is well-rounded and entertaining and has highs and lows. And you you bring down a crowd uh, some way strategically to bring them up later. And I think um, AEW and Tony Khan still fighting their way with some of that. All that said, I went to the the, the Grand Slam show uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was a blast. I mean, like it, it, one of the most fun, fun shows I've gone to uh, in a long time. And it had, you know, it had the big return with uh, Soraya. It had Jericho winning the title. It had uh, Moxley winning the title in a great match against uh, Danielson. So um, far be it for me to say that that it's not a a really fun, terrific product. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for the ebb and the flow, like what you yeah. talked about with Ring of Honor. I've also found, ironically, since we've been talking about New Japan, I find with a lot of contemporary New Japan where I get exhaustion watching the shows yeah. because it's like, does every match need to be a 45-minute match with 87 near falls and things? You do get to the point where you say, you know, I would like a, a, a decent, really hot seven-minute match in here somewhere. Yep. And it's and that's, you know, the the traditional way of doing it has been smart. I mean, look in the old days before pay-per-view and before a lot of wrestling with big shows were televised, 
the shows would actually start very slowly. If you were there live, like people remember this even from the old MSG house shows, first couple of matches would be very, you know, sort of by the numbers, kind of opening match guys, jobbers and TV, you know, people and TV uh, kind of carpenters. And you didn't really get to your really good matches till later in the show. Now, when you have ratings to worry about and and pay-per-view, like you want to start really hot, and that's understandable. You, you don't want to do that, but you still need to have your ups and downs. You need to bring the audience down, bring them back up. You can't just be going at 100 miles an hour for the entire show. I, I think that's really important. And, and sometimes, I mean, NXT used to suffer from that, yeah. some of those shows. Uh, and I know, you know, I know not everybody agrees with me, but some of those, you know, it gets romanticized, but some of those... Uh, takeovers it was just like okay um are, is someone gonna just take out a gun and shoot the other guy like well, when <laughs> right. is this match ending so there is there is a happy medium to be found yeah and and i think the the ultimate sign uh you, you know we could criticize all we want i i think the ultimate evidence of of how they're doing is the uh reported unrest in the aw locker room and and all these stories of wrestlers trying to get released wrestlers who just signed a year or so ago coming over from wwe with the thought that this was the promised land this is where i'm going to get my big break and they're going to give me the opportunities i deserve and and i'm going to be in the main events and uh one after the other after the other now reportedly looking to go back um so uh it when that's the case you're something needs to be uh, addressed. And and a lot of these are super talents, right? You know, and, and it's one of the facts. I remember it was probably about a year ago you did that that piece for PWI about um, uh, wrestlers who came over from WWE to AEW and where were they uh, better off? And it'd be interesting even revisiting some of those wrestlers now, you know, a, a year later. And, and I bet you um, some of them would be different, you know, when you're talking about it. And, uh, so many guys. I mean, I think Keith Lee and Andrade. Uh, I'd almost say more than not, right? You know, and and it just speaks to. I, I think it's one of the biggest issues in AEW, and maybe it is um, to be ex- expected when you have something of a wrestling war. Uh, but they just have too many guys, and they just seem to kind of just keep on hoarding a talent. Yes, we'll take him, and we'll take him, we'll take him, and there's only so many spots in in the main event and and by and large the people who are in the main event scene in AEW are the right ones right i mean who who would question Brian Danielson and and Jericho and Moxley and MJF like sort of being your your top guys um but there there's such a gulf b- between that and where some of these guys i mean great great talents people like Jay Lethal and 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 Roosh and um, you, you forget that they even work for the company, you know, um, Keith Lee and uh, so many of these guys. Uh, so that's got to be uh, addressed somehow. Uh, but I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be too negative on them. By and large, it, it, it's a super fun uh, show to watch. Um, I'm going to break a real soon. Last thing I want to touch on. Did, did you watch Bound for Glory? I, frankly, I didn't. <laughs> but I did. What, you did okay. Yeah. I'd, be, I'd be interested in your take. It's their big, you know. It, it it used to be sort of their WrestleMania, and every year it's um, uh, kind of like my check in of where is it. Uh, you know, uh, um, I should point out just yesterday I got the channel back that shows Impact, so I might be more up to speed week in week out uh, on Impact now. Um, I, I didn't see it. Uh, followed what happened uh, with it. Uh, heard a really good match in the main event with Eddie Edwards. And uh, Josh Alexander, no surprise, both guys are super talents. I guess the the the, the surprise factor, if you want to call it that, was the return of Bully Ray, who 
Um, it was a top star there for a number of years, now kind of getting up there. Uh, but what was your take on the show? Well, uh, you know, it, it sort of speaks to how, unfortunately, how far Impact has fallen, right? Exactly what you said. This was their WrestleMania. And I'm not going to sit here and say that it was ever even anywhere nearly as big as WrestleMania. It wasn't. But it was their biggest show of the year, and they were the sort of closest thing to a number two company at one time in wrestling, in American wrestling. And uh, this, you know, I was at the 2011 Bound for Glory in Philadelphia, courtesy, I was there of, too. courtesy of PWI, of course. But uh, night and day, you know, between a show and a crowd like that and this, you know, the, their shows these days are just on such a smaller scale and and um they it's a very different feel and the thing that happened to the night of bound for glory this year that was a crazy night for wrestling where you had smackdown you had rampage you had battle of the belts all happening the same night as bound for glory and i have to say bound for glory probably was the not probably it was the least visible the least talked about the least uh buzz worthy show of the night you know, and I'm, you know, SmackDown, just the weekly episode of SmackDown was probably the biggest show of that night. But um, that said, I would say, because I watched every single one of those things, that the Josh Alexander and Eddie Edwards main event of Bound for Glory was probably the best match of the night. I would say that yeah. on any on any show. I mean, uh, that night. I could believe it. I, I was uh, in the building for Rebellion where um, Alexander won the title earlier in the year and was just blown away uh, by him. I mean, such a uh, I, I think uh, Dan Murphy touched uh, on it, you know, the, the wrestler's wrestler. I mean, this guy could do it all. I mean, really just an absolute pro uh, main event style wrestler. He gets it. And and, and I think that's the case for, for Eddie, too. They're both. So the right guys in the right spot. Um, and I don't even know if there's anything to criticize about Impact. It's just sort of the reality that they they are where they are. But you're right. I mean, I don't know if you um, if you have like what is it called Tubi, like the free streaming service, and they have their own yes. Impact channel, and they're sort of perpetually streaming old Impact stuff. And you forget like this was a big deal once upon a time. I mean, from um, um, production value, it looked very major league um, at at a time, and and stars and all that. And now it is, um, you know, it's essentially like a televised indie uh, and they try really hard. And I think with the pieces that they have, I, I think they kind of there's some charm in the fact that a Bobby Fish who was kind of scraps in NXT or AEW goes over there and gets to be a big star, gets to be, you know, like on, on the track to being a top guy. And I think that's fine. And it's sort of interesting to see that. Like, here's a place where, um, you know, we'll, we'll recycle you and we'll do something, you know, or, or, or Heath, these kind of guys, um, you know, they sort of appreciate them more than any of these other places will, because there's such a shortage of them. You know, they, they just don't have that many recognizable, uh, people. So, um, you know, a fine show week in, week out, uh, very much feels low budget. Like you touched on, I mean, um, bound for glory was a big show. Uh, it, it, it's all, you know, sort of relatively speaking, I remember that show in Philly, and I also remember the building being mostly empty. Uh, but but right, it was like it still had kind of its own big match feel. And yeah. 
Um, this was in like an armory in Albany or something like that. It was at an it was at an armory. Um, but I mean, God, the 2011 show to go back to it, they had. I mean, the main event involved Hulk Hogan, Sting, Ric Flair, and Eric Bischoff. They were all involved. And I mean, I know people talk about well, that stuff was the downfall of Impact, and in a way, it sort of was creatively. But just the level of star power. I took my kids to that. It was. It wound up being Hulk Hogan's final match in the United States, where yeah. he turned he turned face again. And and Ric Flair was you know is there as a he's not even wrestling and he's there at ringside you know, as a manager or whatever. It it was wild and you had. Uh, I mean, it was just a. It was a very good show. And uh, it's, it was uh, Bobby Roode and Kurt Angle, I remember, yep. right? Yep. yep, right. And I remember there was a great X Division match on there, and Bully Ray was great on there. And it's like, uh, this isn't even the same company. Like, there's no other way to put no. it. It's just not. No, yeah, yeah. But they're trying, and, and it's good that, uh, again, that, that wrestlers have options where a, a Bobby Fish who is drummed out of uh, WWE and then drummed out of AW can still find a place to work, make some cash, be on television, and in some ways in, in a higher profile position than, than he was. He, he, you know, it's that small pond um, for for a lot of wrestlers to be the big fish in, and that's good. I, I don't know that Josh Alexander, um, you know, would, would be a world champion anywhere else or, or could get a break, and over there he gets to headline, um, you know, night after night and and be the top guy on the biggest show for the company in the year and that's awesome that's cool so they certainly um play a role and again for a company that so many times people counted them out uh now 20 years in um still going great good for them i hope they stick around another 20 years yep i do too i mean it's good to have more options and opportunities in wrestling there's nothing wrong with that yeah, yeah. All right, Brian, uh, let's wrap it up. I uh, want to tell people about uh, the book and, and the podcast, and, and I finally got to be on the podcast. This is the second time we've talked in, in the last week, and uh, the first time was on your show, which was uh, one of the most conversations, most fun conversations I've had uh, with you on, on a range of topics. That's right, and it's probably not going to be coming out till early November, I think, just because there's so many that are banked, but yeah, I mean, I think it was fun. I think people like it because it's a chance for us to kind of reminisce and not have to just worry so much about covering all the current right. stories as we do. We could just kind of sit back and talk about the things that we love and just whatever that may be in wrestling. And of course, there's some Ultimate Warrior talk in there. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot, but there's a lot of other things. And the show is called Shut Up and Wrestle. And it's part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. People can find it wherever you find podcasts or it's at suawpod.com. Um, and, yeah, going strong. I'm glad to finally get you now. I've done about 40 episodes, and I finally was able to 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 reach out. I've had Kevin on, and I had Reg on, and a lot of PWI luminaries of the past but, um, you know, we talk to each other so much all the time. <laughs> I wasn't sure <laughs> if you wanted to talk to me again, but we did it and it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, absolutely. And um, uh, Keith Ellie Greenberg uh, has been on your show and, and we're hoping to have him on here soon. He's also been here before. Uh, he's got a new book. So uh, we're thinking that's probably going to be our next episode here. And, and it uh, probably kind of a thematic uh, episode talking about uh, his book, which is all about uh, wrestling in the pandemic era, which is uh, just a rich topic uh, to talk about. So looking forward to that. Uh, you've got your own book, uh, right, about the Sheik, and, and where can people get that? 
Yep, it's called Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And it's available in print, digital, and audio format on Amazon.com. All right, great. Thanks so much, Brian. As always, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back soon.